Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Welcome back to the first in our new season of podcasts celebrating growing up as a child in 1970s Britain and the central role that television played in our childhood. So we are back again for our fourth season, which seems quite staggering to me when you look back at how we started in 2020 with a few reminiscences based on my not entirely accurate memories of my childhood. Well, we certainly seem to have struck a chord with listeners of a certain age and we now have a dedicated audience across the world. For that, I can only say thank you for listening, and also for spreading the word. In the last three months, we have had our largest number of downloads month on month since we first began. So I guess that means I have to make sure we keep you interested, with lots more memories of a simpler time, where you chose which channel you wanted to watch, and if there was something you wanted to watch on the other side, well, you missed it. A big thank you to all of you who've been in touch since we started the podcast. I am genuinely moved by how many of you have been in touch with your memories and your appreciation of the show. I even enjoy those messages I get which point out my mistakes. Well, as many of you know, I try to do most of the episodes based on my memories rather than creating a forensic-like reconstruction of 1970s Britain, so it's not surprising I don't get it all right after several decades. A special thanks to Paul from South Wales, who's been in touch. Paul featured in a couple of our earlier episodes, and he got in touch to say he'd not been very well for some time, but is now on the road to recovery. So that's really good to hear, Paul. And don't forget, you can share your thoughts on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com. Comment on our Facebook page at My70sChildhood. Tweet at My70sChildhood or simply email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Money. It's a strange thing, isn't it? It makes the world go round, as the song says. We all need it. We can't live without it. And I bet none of us would ever say that we have enough of it. But it's something that people dream about, as if it's a magic cure to all problems. Unfortunately, we all know that isn't necessarily true. And there will always be someone who has more money than you do, or lives in a more expensive house, or drives a more expensive car than you do. And, of course, as another famous song says, money can't buy you love. Although I do suspect it might help in some cases. When we're first born, we have no idea of what money is, or where it comes from. But as we start to grow up, we learn all about it. As a small child, I remember that we couldn't have Ribena all the time because it was deemed too expensive, which doesn't cut much ice with a four-year-old. 
and I became vaguely aware that relatives had bought me something called national savings certificates when I was born, in the hope that those would grow over time and give me some money when I needed it later. Incidentally, when my wife and I were moving house a few years ago, I found my and my late brother's national savings certificates, each of which had a pound on it, originally invested in 1967. For a moment I had visions of making my fortune, so I filled in the form and sent them back to National Savings, and waited. And, lo and behold, after a few weeks I got a letter back, saying they were each worth sixty-odd pounds, which was, I have to say, better than a kick in the teeth. But it didn't seem like much for fifty years' worth of investment. Anyway, my earliest memory of money comes from going to Hartley's, the village shop in Padgate, near Warrington, where I lived as a small child. And, if I was lucky, my mother would give me a threepenny bit to choose some sweets or some chocolate. I remember the torment of making a decision, and often I was so taken back by the array of confectionery that I literally couldn't choose what I wanted. I do remember that I often chose either a tube of Roundtree's fruit gums, or a Milky Way, or, or sometimes even a bag of jelly tots, all of which fitted within my budget. So I was able to understand that threepence was equivalent to a tube of fruit gums. And that's how my early financial education went. Until it all got very confusing when, in February 1971, Britain went decimal. Decimalisation was a huge event in 1970s Britain. For hundreds of years, Britain had expressed its currency in pounds, shillings and pence. Now, for those of you who don't remember, there were 12 pence in a shilling, and 20 shillings or 240 pence in a pound. Not the most straightforward of systems, but all of that hundreds of years of history was swept away to adopt the decimal system, which was all based on multiples of 10. I remember there were lots of TV adverts telling people how to convert to decimal using what were called new pence. And there was even a song, sung by the popular band The Scaffold. There were also lots of handy booklets called Ready Reckoners, which had conversion tables, so you could read across from old money to new money, or vice versa. As, as I was four years old and couldn't actually read at that point, that rather passed me by at the time. But I do remember that my granny had a red plastic Ready Reckoner machine. It, was, it had push buttons, which moved the units around and seemingly magically then converted your chosen amount to metric. I couldn't really understand that either, but the pleasure a four-year-old gets pushing buttons on a bright red plastic box cannot ever be underestimated. We also changed all our weights and measures, so stones, pounds and ounces were replaced by kilograms and grams. Feet and inches were replaced by metres and centimetres, and ancient measures like pints and gallons were replaced, or supposedly were going to be replaced, by litres and millilitres all of which meant that a firkin was equivalent to, well, I have absolutely no idea, because I belong to the generation that was taught in metric at school, when the rest of society still used the old imperial measures for everything apart from money. That has meant that I've been part of a slice of our society who really doesn't have a clue about weights and measures. For example, what weighs more, a quarter of pear drops or 250 grams of pear drops? I have absolutely no idea. By the time we got into the 1980s, metric measures were not only taught at school, but increasingly used in society. 
So it was only me and my peers who were affected. It is amazing how many people have had the same issue as me. If you do too and you've been afraid to mention it, you're in good company. Money also had a different value in the 70s. You could get four chews for a penny, or one new pence, more accurately. And a postal order for 50 pence, or sorry, 50 new pence, was a real treat for us 70s children. Even big numbers could get you more for your money. The average house price in the UK in 1975 was £9,179, according to the Land Registry's records, compared to a mere £296,000 in 2022. Yes, money did seem to go a lot further in the 1970s. And, in one of my favourite American TV shows of the decade, we found out what you could get for several million dollars. Well, six million to be precise. The $6 million man was, as well as having a huge price tag, a perfect show for 1970s TV. The $6 million man of the title, astronaut Steve Austin, played by Lee Majors, was an all-American hero. As I say, former astronaut and a test pilot. And during a test mission for a new aircraft, Steve was critically injured and sent for emergency surgery, at which point Oscar Goldman, a sort of American George Smiley, working for the rather shady government agency, the Office of Scientific Intelligence, or OSI, as it was referred to in the show, intervenes and decides that Austin will be rebuilt, as is referred to in the clip you just heard. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. Which, of course, made the usual 1970s assumption that all clever scientists must, by definition, be men. So, as a result of lots of scientific ingenuity using top-secret bionic technology, Steve Austin is transformed by being given two bionic legs, a bionic arm, and a bionic eye, all of which set the US taxpayer back around about $6 million. How Oscar explained this expenditure to his superiors was never elaborated on, but after the operation, Steve Austin found himself as a superhuman cyborg, I suppose, able to run at 60 miles an hour, 
take huge leaps at a single bound. And to have a sort of super zoom lens built into his eye, which could also see in the dark, I think. And he was also probably a pretty good arm wrestler too, so long as he was using the bionic bionic one, which I think was his right arm. Oh yes, and he was also now a super spy in the service of OSI, and doomed to spend the rest of his days as a secret agent, risking his life in return for having his own life saved. Ethically, this all sounds a bit dodgy when I think about it now. But for a seven-year-old, it was absolutely fabulous. Who wouldn't want to have super strength and speed? And I and lots of my friends in the playground used to play at being the bionic man, with every move accompanied by our attempts at... Looking back, I seem to remember the special effects were actually a bit straightforward, although probably leading practice on TV at the time. So when Steve Austin ran at 60 miles an hour, he was clearly running at ordinary speed and the film was speeded up. Similarly, some of his giant leaps were, I'm pretty certain, just shots of a stuntman jumping down from a height and then the film was reversed to appear to show him effortlessly jumping upwards. Very clever, really. But we loved it nonetheless. So why was that? Well, I think the star of the show, Lee Majors, had something to do with it. He was a clean-cut, handsome, all-American hero who played Steve Austin as a dedicated government servant who wanted to do his best but seemed sometimes to have doubts about some of the things he was asked to do. He wasn't so much a James Bond type as might be expected, given all his superpowers. Although he did have an eye for the ladies, I seem to remember. And I think that having a little bit of frailty in his character made him more interesting. Okay, I may be overplaying that, given that his powers always made the difference in nailing the bad guys, but there were occasions where his bionics malfunctioned, for example, when it was really cold, which doesn't seem very helpful given how cold it can get in America, but it added a bit more complexity to the plots, I suppose. I also loved some of the imaginary visionary technology dreamed up by the writers. I remember in one episode that a friend of his in command of an army base or a secret government programme or something like that was replaced by an android which passed undetected until its face was pulled off to reveal lots of wires and flashing lights and diodes and things in typical 70s sci-fi style. And whilst I'm thinking about it, I'm pretty sure there was an episode featuring the legendary mountain monster Sasquatch aka Bigfoot, who really turned out to be an alien who'd been left behind by his fellow big furry aliens and um, was befriended by Steve Austin, who then helped him to return home. So I suppose the writers had to find plenty of plots, as the show ran for 99 episodes between 1974 and 1978, which, rather happily, coincided with my most prolific TV-watching years. Other memorable episodes for me were the two about the bionic woman. Steve Austin's girlfriend, Jamie Summers, played by the lovely Lindsay Wagner, was a professional tennis player who, for reasons I forget, jumped out of a plane and had a terrible parachuting accident. But don't worry, Oscar Goldman and his OSI team were able to rebuild her to become, wait for it, the bionic woman. Much to the light of Steve, no doubt. However, 
Jamie's body rejected her bionics, and she went into a decline during her first OSI mission alongside her bionic boyfriend, and she tragically died. However, the episodes met with such popular success that the studio commissioned The Bionic Woman as a spin-off, which, in turn, was hugely popular in its own account. Oh, and they explained that Jamie Summers had been preserved in a secret cryogenic facility before being revived from, well, being dead. So that was all right, although I should imagine it was a mighty surprise for Steve Austin. Lee Majors was also married to Farrah Fawcett, and they became, quite possibly, the most glamorous couple in Hollywood, a status confirmed when Farrah Fawcett Majors, as she was then known, became one of the original Charlie's Angels. A six million dollar man and a Charlie's Angel. What could be more redolent of 70s TV royalty? As I mentioned, the writers did manage to keep our attention with a pretty inventive series of storyline which never really ran out of different ways to use Steve Austin's powers. And I should also mention Richard Anderson, who played Oscar Goldman, Austin's OSI handler. He played it brilliantly and, with great credit, absolutely straight, never letting some of the, well, frankly ludicrous storylines put him off his part. You probably also remember the merchandise. There was a whole range of toys and games tied in with the series, including the Bionic Man action figure, which was just like Action Man, except it had a a funny eye to represent the bionic eye, and approximations of bionic arms and legs. I think it also had gripping hands like Action Man developed, but these were marketed as bionic hands instead. Makes all the difference. And there was, of course, also a bionic woman figure as well. Now, I never had either of them being a big Action Man fan, but if you've got one on the loft somewhere, I bet it's worth a few bob or shillings or five new pence. I was truly devastated when The Six Million Dollar Man ended, and soon afterwards, so did the Hollywood dream marriage. There was the odd made-for-TV reunion movie featuring the bionic couple, but it wasn't quite the same. As time had gone on, cinema films like Star Wars with its spectacular special effects made shows like The Six Million Dollar Man look a bit a bit dated. And over time, the price tag for Austin's bionics began to look a little cheap. But it wasn't the end for Lee Majors. Oh no. Having achieved his place in 70s TV folklore, he returned in the early 80s with The Fall Guy, playing stuntman Colt Seavers, who moonlighted as a bounty hunter in his spare time. It was another smash hit, and Lee Majors even managed to get a Billboard number one single out of the theme tune. Well, I'm not the kind to kiss and tell, but I've been seen with fair up. I've never been with anything less than a nine. So fine, I've been on fire with Sally Field, gone fast with a girl named Bo. But somehow they just don't end up as mine. It's a death-defying life I lead. I take my chances. I die for a living in the movies and TV. But the hardest thing I ever do is watch my leading ladies kiss some other guy while I'm bandaging my knee. I might fall from a tall girl. 
I know it's not strictly 1970s TV, but it really feels like it should have been. Plus, I love that signature tune. So that's about it for this episode. If you like The Six Million Dollar Man, or have some reminiscences about decimalization, get in touch. Especially if, like me, you're one of the lost metric generation who really can't get their weights and measures right. You can share your thoughts on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com, on our Facebook page, on Twitter, or you can just email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Thanks for listening. It's great to be back. So please join me again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood.